Hey there, it's Gary Parish. It's Wednesday, February 27, 2019. Welcome back to the Ion College Basketball Podcast, where we sometimes discuss camel fighting and leaky black. Matt Norlander is here with me, and since we last spoke on Sunday night, Kansas has beaten Kansas State to give itself a shot to extend its streak of Big 12 titles to 15 years. Indiana has snapped its five-game losing streak. That was against Wisconsin on Tuesday night. LSU's Tremont Waters has missed another game with an illness. Iowa's Fran McCaffrey has reportedly dog-cussed an official. Arizona's Sean Miller has told a reporter to drive back to Phoenix because Sean Miller doesn't want to answer questions about the subpoena he'll likely be served uh, later this year, which is interesting given that the subpoena might like essentially force him to answer questions at some point. A lot to get to. Uh, but I wanted to start with the Duke Blue Devils because uh, Duke uh, is now 1-2 since the moment Zion Williamson suffered a knee injury after his shoe exploded on national television. Lost to UNC last week, then beat Syracuse this past weekend. And then on Tuesday, lost to Virginia Tech at Virginia Tech while missing 14 of the 21 three-pointers they attempted. Obviously, missing Zion Williamson is the biggest deal. He's the National Player of the Year favorite for a reason. But with or without Zion, Duke cannot shoot. The Blue Devils are now shooting just 30.7% from three-point range on the season which ranks 327th nationally. And the Blue Devils have combined to make just 29 of the 116 three-pointers they've attempted in this season's four losses, those losses coming to Gonzaga, uh, Syracuse, North Carolina, and Virginia Tech. That calculates to just 25%. They're shooting 25% from beyond the arc in the games that they've lost this season. Norlander, it's trivia time. When was the last time a team won a national title? Because Duke is the national title favorite. When's the last time a team won the national title while shooting under 31% from three-point range for a season? Right off the bat. Great right be- off the bat trivia time. Great to be here. Um, you sound amazing and lovely, by the way. I will. I, say- I don't sleep anymore. I'm so excited. Like, I'm so tired. Like I was up till four in the morning, and now I'm. And now I'm. I'm and then I was up like. Early this morning, ranking basketball teams and arguing with people on on Twitter. Yeah. I can't even see straight. <laughs> okay. As for the question, uh, three-point line came into effect, when are we thinking, 80, 84, 83? I, it, I believe it, the first season we had a three-point line in college basketball, I believe. Somebody can uh, fact-check me if you want. I believe it was the 1986-87 season. 86-87. And this, so what team that won a national championship was the worst from three-point range? Um, That's not the question, by the way. The question is, when's the last time a team won a national title while shooting under 31% from three-point range for the season? Because Duke right now is under 31%. They're at 30.7%. Uh, my blind guess will be – so my first instinct is to say UConn 2014. UConn 2014 was actually good. Okay. Now, keep in mind, I put all these numbers together while I was half asleep, so it's possible I messed something up. But what I'm showing is UConn 2014 shot 38.7% from three-point range. All right, cool, cool. cool. Yeah, and and by the way, trivia time not being completely factually accurate is a feature and not a bug, so we can just uh, keep rolling with this. Uh, I just just double-checked it. UConn 2014 did shoot 38.7% from three-point range. That ranked 24th nationally. Okay, I'm then next inclined to say, that it would have been a team in either the 80s or 90s before you know teams were were much more inclined to shoot the three, let alone shoot it accurately. Um, 
So I will say, um, I will say Arkansas 94. Arkansas 1994 shot, it's weird the numbers are exactly the same, 38.7% uh, from three-point range. 38.7? That's what it says. That's what my notes tell me. I really did go back and find every three-point percentage for every national champion since 1987. I did also do this at like 3.30 in the morning, so it's possible I missed one, but I don't think I did. And the answer to the question? Well, give me one more guess. Give me one more guess. Hold okay. On. My last guess is – my last guess would be – see, unless I'm way off. I just don't think it – I don't think that it's a team in the past 10 to 12 years. So my last guess, even if that's wrong, let me just – let me lob it out there. I will say – so since 86, 87, um, I'll say – I man, GP – I'm going to go with Michigan State in 2000. Michigan State in 2000, according to my notes, shot. <laughs> Is it possible I really just wrote 37.8 for everybody because it says 37.8? <laughs> Stop. <laughs> what if I just put down 37.8 for everybody? <laughs> There's just no way. <laughs> How do your three guesses all shoot 37.8? Let me uh, we, check. We just, we just entered into an episode of, of the Twilight Zone or something. Something's going no, down I right now. I just checked it with sports reference. Michigan State 2000 shot 37.8%. <laughs> just like Connecticut 2014 and just like Arkansas. How is it possible that the three teams I guess all land on the same percentage? No, I don't know, but that's real That's real life. I just I double-checked all of it. Okay. Let me, double -check, let me double-check Arkansas right now. Arkansas 1994 stats. See, it's coming up right in my uh, little Google searches here. So this is proof I actually did look it up last night. Um, Arkansas 1994 shot 38.7% from beyond the arc. All right. Scotty Thurman shot 42.9%. How dare you, by the way, suggest that an Arkansas team with Scotty freaking Thurman shot under 31% from three-point range. Apologize to Scotty Thurman. And while you're at it, by the way, apologize to, to Alex Dillard because he shot 41%. Alex Dillard, that's I'm not gonna. I'll apologize to Scotty. I'm not apologizing to Alex Dillard. Alex Dude, Dillard, Alex can come Dillard used to pull from that 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 hawks now. <laughs> he pulled from the hawks now. No problem. It's true. All right, what's the answer? The answer to the question: the last time a team won a national title while shooting uh, under 31 percent from three point range for a season. It's never, never happened. Oh, God. It's never happened. You're asking, if this Duke team does not improve on its shooting it from the perimeter, it will it will have to win a national championship doing something that literally nobody's ever done in the history of college basketball, and that's shooting this poorly from beyond the arc. The lowest that I found was 2011 Connecticut. Uh, they shot 32.9% from three-point range. Does that surprise you? Um, not totally, but now I know that trivia time can also include trick questions. I thought there was an actual answer, like a real team that had done this, but okay, good to know. Um, one, one of your options on trivia time always is to say, I don't think that's ever happened. Okay, fine. Duly, duly noted. Um, this is why I have maintained that I won't, like, you know, Duke can get Zion Williamson back tomorrow and beat the next all, – the, all of its remaining opponents until Selection Sunday by 45 points. I'm still not going to pick one to win the national championship because we've never had a team rely on four freshmen as much as Duke relies on four freshmen this se season. It's also uh, 
as bad as it's been from three-point range in more than two decades and as bad as it's been from the foul line in more than two decades. So you combine those three factors, it's why I just I will not bring myself to pick Duke to win it all, even if Zion returns and they, and they seemingly return to form as the most dangerous team in college hoops. Well, in a single elimination tournament, all it takes is one of these disastrous games. Like, like uh, you know, obviously Duke can beat people shooting, you know, under 31% from three-point range. They've been doing it all season. But if you're, let's just say, 7 of 23 or 7 of 24 actually turns into 7 of 33, well, now you've got real problems. Or, or even worse, like 4 of 33? Now you've got real problems. That can be difficult to overcome. Um, in a seven-game series, I'd still pick them over anybody in the country. And I think I'll probably still pick them to win the national championship. But uh, it, it's you don't even have to use a big imagination to see them throwing up one of these just disaster of a game from three-point range against a quality opponent, um, you know, in the Sweet 16, and, and, and it's over. Um, you know, you – it's a real problem. And I don't know if it's like a real problem that they have to fix or that they can fix, but it's a real issue that, that should give anybody um, penciling in Mike Krzyzewski for a sixth national title a little bit of hesitation because that is, that's not a minor slash insignificant thing. Not to mention that, and I don't think this is a problem at all because I don't even view Trey Jones as a freshman. I, I think he's tremendous. But the, the uh, you know beyond teams shooting this way from the perimeter, literally never winning a national championship, teams with freshman point guards don't don't usually win uh, national championships either. That's true. Although uh, I can recall, I can recall one right now off the top of my head in the past two decades. Trivia time. Which one is it? Well, I can name two. Okay. It's Arizona with Mike Bibby, that's, and it is that's Duke not with too, S. That, Jones. Well. Well, that's Arizona was more than two decades ago, but okay. And then who's the other one? Uh, Tyus Jones, right? Duke. That's yes, Tyus Jones and Jerry McNamara, Syracuse. Who was ah. yeah, yeah. So it it does happen. Not not exceedingly common. Bibby was a freshman when that happened, by the way. Believe so. Yeah. Okay, I believe you. Well, well, okay, I'm, 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 what's interesting, right? So there's only a handful of times this has ever happened. Team win a national championship with a freshman point guard, but go look at the top five right now. Duke, freshman point guard, Carolina, freshman point guard, Kentucky, freshman point guard. Three of the best five teams in the country, yeah, um, or at least three of the highest-ranked uh, uh, you know, teams in the country, three of the, t- the top five, right. um, have freshman point guards right now, which is kind of interesting. That is interesting. Uh, we'll see if – and, and it leads to a chance that we could have that repeated. You're right, Bibby was a freshman back in 97 with Zona there. Um, it's also the first time since 2004-2005 that the ACC has had three of the top five teams in the AP Top 25 poll. Back then, it was heading into the NCAA tournament when Duke, Carolina, and Wake Forest, another era indeed, were all in the top five. Um, one note on Duke here, uh, and I bring this up because, frankly, our our buddy and colleague John Rothstein was unfortunately spreading some misinformation on Twitter on Tuesday night, and he got some blowback for it. But uh, I want to I want to clear this up because I do feel like sometimes fans might be a little bit misguided on what's an already kind of you know complicated process when it comes to seating and selection. Just because Zion Williamson is not playing in these games doesn't mean that Duke is not going to be uh, shoved to the side and not they're not going to count. They count. You take the losses. Now, what can happen, and this is why we have a committee, because frankly, we don't know if the net rankings take into account or don't the games Williamson does and does not play. So the human element, the, the discussions that will be had there will potentially have an impact on 
where Duke lands. So do the, does Duke get a pass because it's one and two in games without Zion Williamson? Absolutely not. It's why Duke is off the number one overall seed line. I think in the eyes of most bracketologists at this point with four losses, whereas Virginia and Gonzaga with two apiece um, are really vying for that number one overall seed status. I'd lean toward Virginia right now. We'll see how many games Zion continues to miss or doesn't if he's able to return this weekend or not. Uh, we don't know that. And whenever he does, yes, Duke will be evaluated on, on them at full strength but they'll still be docked for these losses. So the the game on Tuesday night was significant for Virginia Tech because I actually think it I think you can make a real case for Vatech right now to be on the four line. That's an important one. They didn't have Justin Robinson, so they get the credit for not having that player and still getting the win even though it came on its home floor whereas Duke um, you know losses should matter and they will and if they get Zion Williamson back and they continue to play well, like they're going to be firmly on the one line and potentially, you know, back in the mix for the number 1 overall seed if they win the ACC tournament. By the way, maybe winning at Carolina and or beating them again or Virginia in the ACC tourney. There's still a lot to be decided. Overall, I think it's great for college hoops because right now we have a real toss-up. Like, will it be Virginia, Gonzaga, or Duke for the number one overall seed? Kentucky can still get there as well. Carolina can still get there as well. But I think both of those teams need to win their respective conference tournaments in order to do so. Not to mention both of those teams still have to face other teams vying for the one line before then in the regular season. Carolina versus Duke. Tennessee and Kentucky will face each other, and we'll see what Tennessee can do. So I thought Tuesday uh, rattled the top of the bracket in a good way. I like a little bit of drama heading into March, and we got that. And, um, you know, you you mentioned it, but it's worth repeating. Um, you know, Virginia Tech was shorthanded as well. They don't have Justin Robinson, who's a top-three scorer on that team. And, um, and, and yet still, Virginia Tech is, you know, top 20 in the AP poll, 11th at Ken Palm. So I know it was a loss. But it was really just a loss in a hostile environment to a top 20 team uh, um, relative to the AP poll, a top 11 team at Ken Palm. And it was, you know, one possession, final minute, not the biggest deal in the world. Up next for Duke, uh, Saturday against Miami at Cameron Indoor, then Tuesday against Wake Forest um, at Cameron Indoor. So the next two games are home games against unranked teams, you would imagine. Uh, Duke wins those with or without Zion. And then, of course, they close Saturday, March 9th uh, at North Carolina, which will be the biggest game um, of, of that weekend. So I, I, I would predict Duke is going to be a one seed on Selection Sunday. But to your point, yes, uh, you know, just because, uh, you know, uh, Trey Jones and Cam Reddish weren't full participants in the Syracuse game uh, back on January 14th, that's a, that doesn't mean that game doesn't count. It means the selection committee is filled with humans and they'll understand the context of that game, but um, it will still you know, be on the team sheet as a, as a home loss to, to Syracuse. Same thing with the loss to North Carolina, same thing with the loss to Virginia Tech. The selection committee will provide context for who was available and who wasn't in those games, but they'll still be on the team sheet um, you know, in the form of, of losses. Uh, Fran McCaffrey's mad. We're going to try to figure out why in a second. But first, check this out. The all-new Hyundai 2024 Santa Fe is equipped with everything you need to break free from the dull work week and embark on an adventurous weekend with your family. The Hyundai Santa Fe's features like available H-Track all-wheel drive, standard third-row seating, available dual wireless charging pads. You've got the H-Track all-wheel drive so you can take on those dirt trails and kick up some mud. Or the third-row seating gets your whole family in to experience the thrill together. The dual wireless charging pads make sure that no one gets stuck in the great outdoors with a dead cell phone. Think about those adventurous activities you can do. 
like me taking a ski trip up with the family, maybe going on a camping expedition, anything and everything. Learn more about the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe at HyundaiUSA.com. Call 562-314-4603 for complete details. Are you looking for a new basketball shoe? If so, this is Gary Parrish here to tell you that the New Balance 2-Way V4 features the groundbreaking use of fuel cell technology with fresh foam creating the ultimate combination of rebound and cushioning. Every step feels explosive and dynamic, and the upper construction features a lightweight textile that's supportive and breathable. So whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the 2-Way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way at newbalance.com. So Ohio State beat Iowa 90-70 on Tuesday night. And afterward, Iowa's sometimes hot-headed coach, Fred McCaffrey, he reportedly went at a referee in a hallway inside Value City Arena. He, again, reportedly called Steve McJunkins a, quote, cheating MFR and a, quote, effing disgrace. So, Norlander, uh, three questions for you. One is there any evidence that Iowa was cheated on Tuesday night? Uh, two, why is Fran so mad all the time? And three, does Steve McJunkins, does he F mothers? Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to walk that back. I'm going to say no to three. Um, but if his wife is a mother? Okay, uh, if you want to get specific with that, uh, the answer can be yes. I, I so it could have been a factually with, accurate accusation. Without knowing anything about Steve McJunkins, I would assume Steve McJunkins has indeed effed a mother at some point. All right, fair enough. Um, as for number two, uh, well, first you asked if they got cheated. What was number two? Why is he mad all the time? Uh, this is, all right, one, they were not cheated. The the officiating left plenty to be desired. I I was watching that on the on the smaller TV, the uh the Iowa Ohio State game, uh primarily because Ohio State was you know it, it's it, it's firmly on the bubble and it needed that win. Chris Holtman they got themselves a nice win. I think the Buckeyes might be one win away from uh, feeling secure in the field, uh, and I think they're going to get there. But for Iowa, you know it didn't get a great whistle. I don't deny that. I, Ohio State wasn't you know exceedingly beneficial and if you lose by 20 I don't want to hear it and for Fran like I don't we don't know the we've heard the we've we've heard the we've seen the reporting you know they were the bowels of the arena who knows you know the visual in which uh the official was within uh within you know shouting distance eyesight of Fran I don't I don't know any of that but what was reported is you just can't have it. And if it did happen like that, by the way, then of course the official is going to let the Big Ten director of officiating know about this. And of course, Fran McCaffrey is going to be talked to if that's the case. And you can't have this. You know, Fran McCaffrey isn't doing something every single game. And frankly, he hasn't had a major episode every single season, but he's had enough of them where the uh, Parrish, we talked about this, I think, two years ago. I mean, unfortunately, the reputation has been established. And in many ways, like, Fran McCaffrey, good guy to talk to, you know, a lot of positive qualities, but he has become one of the poster boys for college basketball coaches who can't keep their stuff together, just as the case. And this kind of thing, we, 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 saw, we, we saw that a reporter uh, passed it along, and then uh, there was a second account that confirmed it. I mean, you just can't have this. It's a horrible look. And by the way, his son also got a technical. So we got the rare... Father-son technical in the same game. Um, 
We'll see if uh, if the Bayheim family can uh, can match what the McCaffreys did here. Probably unlikely given given Buddy Bayheim's general dis uh, disposition, but um, I know you've got thoughts on this. But it's just it's it's a letdown for McCaffrey, and it's another bad look for Iowa, who, by the way, in the midst of all of this, you know, suspended its uh, its radio play by play announcer for the rest of the year uh, for for uh, you know. A regrettable comment, um, and you can you can go ahead and Google that if you, if you choose to. But the Iowa fan base has rallied behind the play-by-play -play announcer and gone after McCaffrey, gone after the AD even harder. So things have been uh, quite busy and buzzy at Iowa over the past week or so. First, I don't, I couldn't I could never see Buddy Beheim talking to an official the way that the the, the McCaffreys talk to an official, and uh, yeah, like I, it's hard for me to say how I would be if I were a basketball coach. You know, like how I would talk to officials or just other humans, but like it does seem that Fran's way over the line. Um, I mean, just think about your your own life. When's the last time you were face to face, or at least in the general vicinity of another human, and yelled at them, "You mf and cheater! You cheating mf'er! You're a effing disgrace!" My like, have you ever said that to anybody? My child this morning. I know. Okay. No, no, no. I mean, no, 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 I'm not. Live, it goes without saying that you're going to talk to the people you live with and who like mess up your home nonstop, like in that way. I mean, people that you don't actually have to deal with on a daily basis. <laughs> no, that's honestly though, Paris. That's why sometimes it's like it's inappropriate, but it's hilarious. Like if you look at this, the human to human communication and context of all of this it's uh, it's bizarre, and it's also why I've always thought it's interesting how college and college basketball. It's the coaches who act this ridiculously. You never see pro coaches act like this, and yet it's the reverse with the players. In the NBA, it, it, you know, it's it's the Rasheed Wallace, Tim Duncan, every single player practically. It's like, oh my God, no, I did, I couldn't have possibly fouled him. Are you out of your mind? Whereas you almost never see that with college basketball players. So the roles are a bit flipped with the with the two sports. Well, I think it's probably the the power dynamic. Yes, you know it. At the college level, it's the coaches who have all the power. And in the NBA, it's the players who have all the power. And so they, you know, react to things accordingly. But, yeah, it's just not a good look. And, you you know, it, you're exactly right about Fran. Like, in, in, a, in a different setting, he's a different guy. Like, I sat down with him at Big Ten Media Day back in October, November, whenever that was. And we had, a, like, a pleasant conversation. His son – um. I, I think I think his son also plays baseball, maybe. And his son had just hit like a, a walk-off homer or, you know, in some sort of exhibition or something that I'd read about. And so we were talking. We were just two fathers sitting there talking about our children. Like the, like I, on a personal level, like I like Fran McCaffrey fine. But um, he's had some moments on camera and then this one off that just um, seem unbecoming of, uh, you know, one of the highest paid uh, university employees, if not the highest paid university employee, um, you know, in, in the in the state of Iowa, like there should be a, a, a I think at least uh, just a, a a way a, a way that a different standard you hold. If nobody else holds you to it, and today nobody's held friend to anything, best I can tell. But if other people aren't going to hold you you to it, maybe you hold yourself to it. Just a different standard. The the idea that. You know, after getting smacked around on the road, you know, I don't care how bad of a whistle they got. The reason they lost to Ohio State by 20 ain't because of the officials. 
Um, it might just be because Ohio State's pretty good and you were on the road, and this happens against pretty good teams on the road sometimes. But to to be going um, after an official, and and I don't want to like be over dramatic and, and say things like and using that language because like I use that language, uh, but I don't use it directed at other humans. I just use it in like really directed at myself. <laughs> I really just call myself these things. But yeah, I mean it, it, it's it's he's out of line, and and I, I think he'd be better served if 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 he. You know, cut it out if if it's even possible, and 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 if he can't do it on his own, and I'm, I'm being sincere here, sincere here, like maybe get some help to help you handle yourself in those situations a little better, because, um, regardless of what I think or what you think, he should be embarrassed. I mean, he either he, he's become, as you said, the poster boy for for bad college basketball behavior on the sideline or wherever else. Like he's a joke. Now people mock him. Last night on Twitter, he was being mocked with meme after meme after meme, and I can't imagine you want to be that guy. I I I bet he never intended to be that guy, but he is that guy right now. Yeah. Um. Now, Parrish, you know, the mfing of officials is nothing new. It happens. Uh, it doesn't make it right, but it just happens. Like, you know, more than half the college coaching population mfs officials, and a lot of these dudes are. Are, you know, are great guys to deal with, uh, and they do a lot of great things. But when it comes to the in-game dynamic, you know, a certain switch gets flipped on, and you don't want to have it, but it's just inevitable. I mean, I, you know, that that's just a, that happens in multiple sports. But what you, the the accusing the official of cheating, which you know, frankly, is a, is a direct accusation of nefarious activity that there was some reason he would have been inclined to either job Iowa or help Ohio State. You can't have that, but it, it introduces a tricky, a tricky environment here because it wasn't caught publicly. This is behind. This is in the bowels of the arena. Who knows how many people were within earshot of this? But nevertheless, if the official goes to his director and says this happened, we have uh, multiple media reports that it did happen. I think you have to suspend for Fran McCaffrey for a game for this. You cannot have coaches. He would never. Or how, about, how about this way? If he said it at a press conference, he'd undeniably get suspended. So if he's saying it within that context where he's still within the earshot of other – like if you want to say it behind closed doors on the bus ride home and just vent, that's one thing. But when you are still within earshot or visibly um, you know, within the realm of, of reporting and media and just the general population that's working back there – you can't have it. So I don't know. I don't think that he will get suspended. Maybe it's just I think a reprimand, as meaningless as those things are, uh, I, that feels probably inevitable. You cannot have this. And uh, I think the right thing to send the proper message would be to sit him for a game. Uh, if you're making me guess one way or the other, I'll say it doesn't happen. But that's what I would do. If I'm the Big Ten, if I'm Jim Delaney, if I'm the conference commissioner, I cannot. I, I have no issue personally with coaches going after officials when they're wrong and expressing their frustrations, but you have to draw a very, very um, stark line, and you cannot have, with an absence of real evidence, your coaches accusing officials of, of being on the take, of cheating, of having you know illicit motivations. So I don't know if that's going to happen, but I'd sit him for a game. You make an important distinction. Um, it's one thing to say, man, this official did a terrible job. Man, we got a bad whistle. Man, that guy missed a call. It's another thing to call somebody a a, a cheating mf'er because that implies intent. You know, officials could miss calls. It's a hard job. 
officials could have bad games, just like players could have bad games. I'll never forget when I played soccer when I was a kid, uh, we would have this one official um, referee uh, pretty regularly. And um, I was a captain on our team, so I would always, like, you know, be at midfield just before kickoff and, you know, you, you shake other people's hands and whatever. And the the referee, I can still remember this all these years later, he would look at us and, and he'd say, um, have you ever played a perfect game? And I'd say, uh, no, sir. And he'd ask everybody, have you ever played a perfect game? He said, okay, cool. I've never called a perfect uh, game either. So I'm not going to get mad at you when uh, you mess up today. Don't yell at me when I mess up today. I'll do my best. You guys do your best. And it was like, yes, sir. Yes, sir. But I, that's always stuck with me because I, I find it to be fundamentally true. Um, the officials out there, with rare exception, because I do know the Tim Donahue story, uh, the officials out there aren't trying to cheat anybody. They're doing their job as best they can. It doesn't mean they don't have bad games or bad weeks, or maybe they're just not. Maybe they're just bad. Some guys are just bad at their jobs, um, but they're not out there cheating. And so it's one thing if Fran McCaffrey is saying you missed this call. To call somebody a cheating mf'er is to imply that they went out of their way with intent to cost you something. And I don't know Steve McJunkins at all, but I can't imagine that that's really what happened, which which I think is evidence that, that Fran was over the line. And I'm with you. It's also one thing to, to just say in a random setting that, um, you know, the referee missed a call, the referee, we didn't get a good whistle, whatever. Um, if you believe the quote and trust it, and I have no reason not to because – Fran, nobody else has refuted it at this point. Uh, the quote was, you cheating mf'er. That means he's yelling it at Steve McJunkins, right? Yeah. It wasn't just like Steve McJunkins, a cheating mf'er. When the quote is, you cheating mf'er, that means you're yelling it at that person. That means he called a referee either to his face or to his back, depending on how they were situated, because I imagine the scene is an official walking to their locker room and Fran chasing them down the way crazy coaches sometimes do. Um, you know, like to, to call somebody a cheating mf'er, that's just, that's over the line. I mean, I don't know what the Big Ten's going to do. They might not do anything. But if they suspended him for at least a game, it, it, it wouldn't be out of line as far as I'm concerned. Okay, so from one coach's reaction to another, do you think, and set this up for our audience, do you think what Sean Miller did on Tuesday's press conference was over the line? I don't think what Sean did was over the line. I mean, it might have been, but I think it just does Sean no no favors. I mean, I, I would not have seen that moment if he didn't create that moment. You know, I wasn't in Tucson. Um, but listen, man, your program is in this situation. Perhaps no fault of your own, but almost nobody believes that. You've got one assistant, like your right-hand man, uh, for a, a decade, um, you know, arrested, charged with a federal crime. You had another assistant get fired for allegedly violating NCAA rules. You you got DeAndre Ayton when we know that, according to text messages, T.J. Gasnola paid Larnell for crying out loud. And tried to get him to go to Kansas. And tried to get him to go to Kansas. Like, that was the text exchange. Don't ever forget this. Between Bill Self and T.J. Gasnola. T.J. Gasnola is more or less promising Bill Self our Adidas Kansas bond is strong. It's Kansas one, everybody else second. I'm going to do everything I can do to make sure I get you what you need. And the only time I've ever let you down is 
with DeAndre Ayton. LOL. Yeah. Don't ever forget that. We, we TJ Gasnola paid one of DeAndre Ayton's friends real money. That's Larnell. Shouts to him. And also promised Bill Self he would do whatever he had to do to get things done. And the only time he'd ever let him down was with DeAndre Ayton. So if you want to believe DeAndre Ayton went to Arizona for, no, for nothing, you can if you want to. I'm just telling you, nobody outside of the state of Arizona actually believes that. And so, Sean, and not to mention all the other stuff, right? Yeah. Javon Quinterly. I mean, but you know, if you listen to those wiretaps or read the transcripts, transcripts or any testimony that came out in the federal trials earlier or late last year, um, like Arizona, at least according to the people who are caught up in this thing, was the one school like willing to buy just about anybody. Like Arizona's willing to do this. Arizona's willing to do that. Arizona's willing to do that. And Sean Miller oversees that program. So your program's in this spot. You might say it ain't got nothing to do with you, but again, nobody outside of Arizona believes that. Um, at the very least, you were you know covering your ears and covering your eyes. But again, most people don't even believe that. So this is this is where you're at. And it's been reported earlier this week you're going to be subpoenaed. And you are, if Christian Dawkins actually goes to trial, per- perhaps, if not probably, going to be put on a stand under oath. And you're going to have to ask answer real questions that I imagine are difficult. And for you to be dis- dismissive of, of the story and then dismissive of a person doing just simply doing the job that, that, that they're hired to do, I guess let me rephrase my initial answer to your question. Yeah, I do think he was over the line, uh, out of line. Um, he didn't handle that moment well, and if he can't handle that moment well, um, good luck when you're under oath with attorneys coming at you because they won't be nearly as gentle, and you won't be tell- be able to tell them to drive anywhere. There is a rising expectation that Sean Miller will be uh, called to the stand when the next trial uh, case goes to trial, I should say, which is scheduled to happen in April after the season is over. This is the same case that his assistant, Book Richardson, and um, other coaches have pleaded out on, but Christian Dawkins and Merle Code, who are facing separate charges in the separate case, have not pleaded out, and their attorneys have maintained they will not. Uh, now, and part of that is because the uh, the attorneys... They want to get the coaches on the stand because they want to try as best they can to paint a picture of what's actually happening in college athletics, which they obviously failed to do in the first one. Should also be noted that this upcoming trial will not have the same judge, barring something I'm completely unaware of. I'm of the understanding that it will be a different judge this time. Obviously, it will be a different jury. We wait and see on all that. But what happens here, the context of all this, is Yahoo comes out with a report on Monday that says Will Wade and Sean Miller um, are, you know, are, are, are likely to be subpoenaed soon. And the way that it's being done is not in the typical way where you have someone walk up and be like, oh, I dropped my bag. Can you pick that up for me? Like, like you see in the TV shows and the movies, and it's like, you've been subpoenaed. It's done in a more um, uh, tactful way that doesn't draw uh, a lot of attention because they are high-profile individuals. And so we wait on them to get their official subpoenas. But they've been notified that they are indeed coming. So in light of this happening, obviously it's significant news in college basketball. What happens is Sean Miller does these press conferences once or twice a week or whatever, right? And he has got, with the exception of maybe some national media jumping in here or there when they're coming to see a game or, or frankly, cover this story or do something else, uh, it's usually the same group of people. You don't often have uh, different people from news organizations or whatever from throughout the state to show up. Well, the Yahoo's report comes in 
Miller has a press conference, and he sees anywhere from three to six to seven faces that he just doesn't see at his press conferences normally. And so he gets defensive about it because he knows why they're there. And it also, you know, has to be said that he was asked about this apparently. I did not watch the entire 18, 20 minute uh, press conference video, but I have seen uh, the tweets and reports that he was asked about this. Uh, you know, and he responded that he would have no comment. It was then, you know, another reporter who doesn't cover the team on a day-to-day basis followed up, and then he said, no comment. You can drive back to Phoenix, which I might start instituting on the podcast whenever you want to try and refute me, Parrish. I might just be like, you can drive back to Phoenix. Um, so I, he didn't, like, lose his cool, but it was a moment that drew some attention there because – you know, I don't know what we should expect Sean Miller to be saying, but Miller also needs to know that these questions are going to come, uh, and he should, in a way, probably be thankful that he is not going to play in the NCAA tournament, barring a huge run in the Pac-12 tourney, because that is the kind of setting where it, it is absolute open fire, and it is more high-profile from a press conference standpoint than almost anything that you can have during the regular season. Now, he doesn't have to give up information, but if he simply, you know, instead of just completely uh, – digging the heels in and, and you know, trying to burn a hole through the reporter's face, he can say, I hope you all understand. I know you have jobs to do, and some of you came out here and, and drove the whatever it is, two, three hours from Phoenix to Tucson. Um, given the nature of the case, I can't speak about this. I respect the fact that you have to ask questions, but I have no comment. Uh, and, you know, when the time is appropriate or under different circumstances, I'll be able to speak about it more. But that's all I can say. If he just simply gives two or three sentences that explains it, yeah, maybe it opens up for a follow-up, but you got to deal with it, man. That's what you're paid for. And he's also, I think, uh, he's just under it a lot because there have been multiple meetings about his future, the future of the program, and with this, you know, looming NCAA inquiry, you know, the formal probe. We don't know uh, if and when and what kind of sanctions that Arizona could come under. Yeah, so his job is under attack, and uh, when you make an extremely good living at uh, one of the top ten jobs in America, and and that is that is being threatened, then I can understand where he's coming from. But I just think he could handle it a little bit better. You're exactly right. By the way, it's public relations 101. I mean, you just answer the question the way you describe with a smile, and every everybody leaves. No big deal. It, it's just like, um, listen, I understand why you're here, and um, I understand why you would ask that question. It's a perfectly reasonable question, um, and I wish I could answer it. But um, given the the reality that this is a, a still developing uh, criminal case, I've just been advised by my you know, I've just been advised not to talk about it. I hope there is a day that I will be able to talk about it. I look forward to telling my story, but I, I just can't do it today under these circumstances. And I, I'm, I'm sure you understand. It's easy. You come across like a totally reasonable person, but no comment. You can drive back to Phoenix. <laughs> I mean, it's just like you're not doing yourself any favors. Like, listen, Sean Miller doesn't know me anything, or I guess not that reporter. I'm just saying Sean Miller – is doing himself no favors by handling that moment the way he handled that moment. And I'm not sure why somebody couldn't have helped him with that in advance, because it should not be a surprise that um, he was going to be asked in some form by somebody about the report that he's getting ready to, to, to maybe have to testify under oath about uh, lots of things that could, you know, create uncomfortable conversations. Let me ask you this. Because I had somebody ask me, and there could be other coaches, you know, subpoenaed and, and, and forced to testify as well. But right now, the report 
uh, from our friends Pat Forty and, and and Dan Wetzel and Pete Thamel is that Will Wade and Sean Miller both are, are, are the two coaches that are expected to be subpoenaed. You know, the the obvious question is can can either or both survive it? And I guess I would just say this because this is what I said to somebody on radio yesterday. I said um, I, I I'm not going to speak in absolutes about what Sean Miller did or did not do, or Will Wade did or did not do, or Sean Miller did or did not know, or Will Wade did or did not know. But I will say this: take those two guys, put them over here, and let's just talk vaguely or you know um, generally about college basketball coaches. I I think it'd be tough for almost any. I don't want to paint with a broad brush. I mean, a pretty broad brush, but not completely broad brush. I think it'd be tough for anybody who consistently recruits at the highest level of the sport, enrolls five-star guys, particularly five-star guys from outside of their natural recruiting base, um, to be placed under oath and be asked questions about the world of recruiting or things they may or may not have done, testify honestly and not really put themselves in some some difficult situations from an employee perspective. I, I don't know that Sean Miller will have to testify to anything that will put him at, at um, legal risk. Same thing with Will. But could they have to testify about stuff that could put him at NCAA risk? I mean, that, you know, maybe not. I, you know, again, maybe not. But, whoo, boy, I wouldn't want to be that guy. Yeah, right. And we will see, one, if they wind up even getting called to the stand. Uh, you know, We'll remind you that when I sat in that courtroom in October and I saw the defense team try and bring elements into its arguments that the judge just was not having, that would, to you and me and so many others that follow and know college athletics, you'd be like, that seems exceedingly relevant to what we're talking about here. But from a, from a, a legal, from a litigious, from a ju- judicial standpoint, with the very uh, basic the basic tenets of the case, that judge wasn't having any of it. So we will see. Uh, obviously, you know, you put high-profile college basketball coaches under oath, that is going to perk up a lot of ears, widen a lot of eyes. Um, the potential is still there for that. And if they do get to that point, yes, I think it does uh, make them all the more vulnerable to the NCAA. But we will wait and see on, on all of that. And uh, if and when that happens, that will be, frankly, that will be the uh, – as soon as the final four ends, you know, attention will turn to that. And that, that case, by the way, is also scheduled to, to happen in New York. And if indeed it goes on as planned, I will be there on the ground. And, and we, will, <laughs> we will have no shortage of podcast fodder uh, as that plays out. Last thing before we get out of here, big game in the Big East scheduled for Wednesday night. It's number 10 Marquette at unranked Villanova. That's unranked Villanova that's lost three straight games to unranked teams. Tip scheduled for 9 p.m. Eastern. And if Marquette wins... It will secure at least a share of the Big East title because, again, Villanova is now on a three-game losing streak. Uh, that means if Marquette wins, Marquette would then only need to beat Creighton or Georgetown at home to secure an outright Big East title. Norlander, it's trivia time. When was the last time Marquette won an outright Big East title? Trick question. It's never happened. When was the last time Marquette you're correct, by the way. When was the last time Marquette shared a Big East title? Trick question. It's never happened. That is not true. Okay. Plus <laughs> Williams did it in 2013. They were Big East co-champs. This did surprise me. 
Marquette's only won at least a share or an outright conference championship three times ever. Doesn't that seem low? It it does seem low. Um, so. 19 1994 Great Midwest. I was going to say Great Midwest Conference. Did they ever win it? Okay, 94. And then what else? Four Great Midwest outright champs. 2003, they were the the champion of the American division of Conference USA. Memphis won the national division, but Marquette had the better league record, so perhaps you can call them conference champions. And then 2013, uh, 2013 Big East co-champs, and that's it. Three conference championships, history of the program. That's a program that's got a national championship and only three conference championships in history. That, that, that was surprising to me. Right, but if memory serves, I, I'm almost positive that they were an independent when they won the national title, and they were weirdly independent for a long time. So, yeah, you're right. But if you if, like, they have not been a part of a conference for 70, 80 years. I want to say that they were independent into, like, Early 1980s, so that you can't win a conference if you don't yeah. have a conference affiliation. Well, uh, first off, you're exactly right, um, and, and I didn't really realize that. That's wild. How were they not in a conference for a million years? Uh, I, I think I think <coughs> college basketball athletics conference affiliation the, from uh, up until basically like the late 1980s, it was it was it was a wild west. Like we. We we established you know continental shifts and and all this stuff like we finally got some sort of semblance into the early '90s mid '90s and even then it went from Big Eight to Big Twelve, Pac Ten to Pac Twelve like it's conferences are always shifting but yeah Marquette's one of those weird ones we have a uh, devoted and uh, beloved Marquette listening contingent that will probably be able to detail we're not asking for this but I know they can the the either the uh, political nature or the athletic nature of why they went so long without having a conference affiliation. But regardless, uh, I remember that being a thing where they won it as an independent when they won the whole thing in 77. And uh, and so there you go. So that would that would help explain it. But just qu- real quick, GP, uh, like on, on the well, let, let me um, I got the details here now. They didn't they didn't join a conference until 1990. Good God. So, yeah, they've got they've got three conference championships in their history. Trivia time. Oh, gosh. Can you name the coaches of those three teams? I already told you one's well, Buzz Williams. Oh, yeah. So one's Buzz. One's Crean, right? Right. Why? Okay. And who won the first 94. ever conference championship at Marquette? There's just – there's there's no shot I can name who I, – I have no idea who was coaching Marquette in 94. Who is it? The homie Kevin O'Neill? All right. He's not the homie, but okay. It's Kevin O'Neill? I guess I guess I knew he coached Marquette, but I I had forgotten about that. It's, it's not the homie. Okay. It's my big it's my big homie, Kevin O'Neill. <laughs> okay. Um all right, so there you go. Crean, O'Neill, Buzz Williams, Wojo will be the fourth because they're gonna they're gonna get this done. I had someone ask me if Marquette wins out and not just regular season Big East tournament, would, would they have a shot at two seed? They'd be a lock for a two seed. A four-loss Marquette team is landing on the two line no matter what happens, but they got to do it, and I don't think that they're going to get to – I don't think they're going to get this win. Now, Villanova has been bizarre, Parrish. Four or five, all the all the losses have come on the road, but still, like, looked bad against Xavier, lackluster against Georgetown, um, frazzled against St. John's, and ill-equipped against Marquette, their four most recent losses. They got to get things turned here. Things have things have spoiled in a hurry, 
on Villanova. And it's a statement overall on the Big East, which is way down this season. I mean, you had Butler lose a game on Tuesday night at home to Providence. Butler is out of the tournament picture as far as I'm concerned. So at this point, you know, the Big East is coming off a season in which it had six teams in the tournament and has taken a massive step back here. It still ranks fifth at Ken Palm in overall strength GP, but it's it's a week five. Uh, I actually think there's a there's a big gap between a big uh, Big Ten, Big Twelve, ACC, SEC, and then when you get to the Big East, Pac-12, and the American, and the rest of the groups out there, Marquette's fine. St. John's going to get in without too much of an issue. Villanova should get in, but it's just it's seed it's slipping, and then you get into uh, Seton Hall, Xavier. Creighton, Butler, like uh, Georgetown, none of these teams are inspiring from an NCAA tournament at a large perspective. And here's the ironic thing. Like Seton Hall, Xavier, Georgetown, Creighton, Butler, they're all sub-500 in the league. Weirdly, I could have set you up with a trivia time. Damn it. Why did I miss that? So here's the here's the trivia time without the, without the question. The Big East is the only conference in America in which all of its teams are above 500. But it's a bad year for the league, undeniably, a big step back. So kind of weird how um, how things have shaken out there. But Nova's got to win this, man. If, if Nova loses, I have a hard time believing how any Big East team isn't better than a seven outside of Marquette on Selection Sunday. I will take the Wildcats to win at home. Yeah, I think Villanova probably wins at home uh, as well. But I think Marquette still probably wins the outright Big East title. Um but I think Marquette's only like a four-and-a-half-point underdog um, at Villanova, and that just sort of speaks to not necessarily how well Marquette's been playing, but how poorly Villanova has been playing. Again, three straight losses to unranked teams. How wild was it that your three guesses for three-point shooting teams were all 38.7%? 38.7 or 37.8? I believe. Let me see here. Oh, boy. 38.7. There we go. That is – <laughs> that's an all-timer. That's an all-time podcast moment because it, the fact that they you you even had three national championship winning teams that that landed on that exact percentage for a season's worth of data, and then that I would guess one, two, three random years those teams they all happen to land on it. That's uh, that's straight up. Uh, that's incredible. Shouts to Devin Downey. Shouts to Chester, South Carolina. Shouts to Terry M. F. and Teagle. He's a legend. Shouts to Larnell. Shouts to Kevin O'Neill. And remember, please He's go not subscribe the to the College Basketball Podcast via Apple Podcasts. If you've already done it, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, it helps us, but also ensures you'll get the episodes uh, as quickly as possible. If you haven't done it yet, it really only takes a minute. So please go do that. Subscribe. Five stars, nice comments. That's all I've ever asked from you. And we will talk to you again to preview the weekend, either Thursday night or Friday morning. We'll figure that out at some point. Until then, take care.